0: You're listening to Feed Play Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Normally, I'm a bit cynical about someone who writes a memoir before they've hit their older years, say around 60. How much life can you actually reflect upon when you've only been on the planet for a few decades, Corey White is definitely an exception to the rule. His memoir, The Prettiest Horse in the Glue Factory, is a confronting and heartbreaking read about growing up in the foster care system. It's also a book about how Corey himself survived such horrific experiences and grew up to be a comedian who makes people think about things they'd probably rather ignore. Hi, Corey. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Was this a difficult book to write?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that it was, um, and I talk about the effects of writing the book in the book itself towards the end um, when it catalyzed uh, a few issues for me. But uh, I think ultimately it's been a really positive experience. Um, I think that it's represented the end of a certain kind of phase of my life, and um, probably the last time that I'll talk on a personal level about these issues, I feel as though I've enshrined them now. I've I've locked them away, and uh, and to be able to put out the book uh, did require some therapy. You know, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of personal development, and uh, I'm really looking forward now going forward to working on other sort of non you know, childhood-related stories.
0: So it does start out talking about your childhood. Mm-hmm. How would you describe <laughs> that?
1: I would describe my childhood as the one uh, none of the listeners want the kids they care for to have. Um, I grew up in foster care um, on and off from about the age of eight months old. My uh, my family home was filled with a lot of domestic violence and drugs, um, sexual abuse, uh, my father was a violent alcoholic and gambling addict, and my, fa- uh, my mother was a, a heroin addict. And she passed away when I was 10 of a heroin overdose, and uh, I remained in foster care from the age of 10 to 18, and I went through a succession of pretty, uh, pretty poor uh, out-of-home care placements with sort of a range of very abusive uh, or neglectful foster parents.
0: That all sounds extremely traumatic.
1: Yes, <laughs> I can imagine.
0: <laughs> How does that affect your memories of that time?
1: Well, yeah, this is certainly something that I discuss in the book, The Nature of Memory. I think I have a line that time heals all wounds, but the wounds to memory. These ones it keeps fresh against the years. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, um, child uh, development psychologists would tell you about uh, the way that child abuse and trauma and neglect can um, fragment memories and disrupt um, memory consolidation and things like that. So it was interesting writing this book, actually, because um, I don't have a terrible amount of memories, Uh, and that definitely informed the fractured, fragmented style that I use early in the book. Um, But, yeah, really everything that's in the book, in the memoir, um, is essentially the extent of what I do remember. So, in, in a sense, it kind of made writing a memoir easier. I'm like, well, <laughs> what else are you going to put in there? All right, here's a little story about a giraffe. Like, There's like 10 stories. Yep, done. It's all there. So, it was kind of a little win for old Whitey.
0: <laughs> um, when you – reading this book as a parent is quite challenging mm-hmm. because all I can think of is that little boy mm-hmm. and, of course, the adult that you've become and the memories you've had to take with you – but at the same time, you have spoken with empathy for both of your parents. Mm-hmm. Given the experience and, and how we as parents are there to protect our children and you weren't protected, mm-hmm. how did you find that empathy?
1: Uh, that's a really very good question. I think that um, I think when I was about 16, I, I read a lot of philosophy and I was fascinated with uh, Plato and um, Socrates and Aristotle. There's a line that Plato has um, where he says uh, "No man does what is evil to him." The idea that you know whatever we do we um you know we have this concept of evil and evil is that which we will not do by definition. So everything we do we think we do because we think it's good or because we can't help but do it and that idea when I was a sixteen year old reading it really affected me um, and it sort of made me reflect on why my parents were the way they were. Um, and I would, you know, I, I remember spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, my father, you know, was a, tr- a hot, hor- horrific misogynist and sexist and very violent and abusive. And I wondered, um, did he do those things because he believed they were good? Or did he, was he so severely mentally ill or a drug and alcohol affected that he engaged in that behavior? And I don't really take a firm position in the book on that, but. I think what matters for my sense of, I guess, what you call empathy is the ambivalence that I have. Um, To what extent do people really have complete unimpeded free will? Um, You know, it's interesting. Both of my parents were, you know, suffered trauma and they repeated that trauma. And it's, you know, it's a well known fact um, that people who experience trauma um, are far likelier to, to repeat that trauma. Uh, and, and you'll find that most people who do perpetrate trauma suffered childhood trauma. Um, not everybody that suffers childhood trauma does that. But the fact that there is that relationship is really interesting because it makes you wonder, like, do pe- are all these people making the same choice? Or did what happened to them influence what they became and what they, they did? Um, and so I guess I just always, um, uh, you know, I was influenced by philosophy and I guess just a feeling, I guess I have a... Um, at, at bottom, um, a feeling that people are ultimately good. And I, I guess I have this perhaps naive idea that if you could just sit someone down and give them enough love and logic that they wouldn't do, they wouldn't inflict suffering on others. And God, perhaps that's, that's completely naive and gullible.
0: Oh, not coming from you, it's not. It's extremely mm-hmm. hopeful, um, given what you've been through. Talking about the foster system... Mm-hmm. And what you just mentioned there in terms of what motivates people to to behave the way they did, you had some pretty terrible foster carers and one in the book that you call Tracy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that she was originally damaged because her treatment was pretty...
1: Uh, Yeah, it's very difficult. A lot of readers have sort of said that that's um, particularly shocking. Um, And I mean, in the book, I I talk about my conflicted feelings about that uh, then and now. And that I know that she, she did have a difficult childhood. And uh, I just, I guess I can't believe that a healthy, sane human being would ever choose to do the things that she did. That on some level, this is certainly not to condone them or to excuse them, but the, but the, the damage in some way related to the damage she inflicted. There's some kind of relationship there. Um, but certainly it was very, very harmful and... Uh, and uh toxic and and it affected me for years and still affects me but um, you know she herself has a past and a story that shaped who she was and I think that for a lot of people you are shaped well I think for everybody you are shaped by your childhood you are shaped by your environment and um,
0: but how do you reflect
1: and also I, here's the thing his here's, here's, this is a nice crystallization but of people often compliment me oh you know you're this comedian you're a writer you know this is fantastic you know you're so brave or resilient and i don't really feel like i ever chose to be the way that i am i feel like i've just been this way for the longest time and um and also when i was a child i was very um you know self-destructive and aggressive and taking after my father uh but you know in my teen years there was a switch and i didn't choose that switch and naturally when you think when you you don't claim when you don't seek to claim, like some kind of moral authority or extraordinary courage or wisdom for yourself. You have to extend that to other people. Like I didn't really choose to be the way that I am. Did my father? Did my mother? Did Did Tracy choose?
0: But it sounds like, in in some ways, having read some of the book and also understanding where you've come since then, sure. that one thing you had that perhaps they didn't mm-hmm. is kindness, and surely we can choose to be kind.
1: Yeah, I I think um, one of the things that I didn't want... with the book I didn't want to be didactic. I didn't want to lay down what I think because I don't have a, a a hard and fast black and white view of things. But I think there is an open question in the book of of what is choice. Um, you know, it, uh, I I don't know. It's um it's a it's a complicated thing. Yeah, it's a really hard question. And um, I think. You know, I I tried to write my story as artfully as possible to make it as as literary as possible and I think um, those two goals require that you you don't sort of engage in easy moralising or easy black and white thinking, that you sort of present all of this mishmash of information and experiences and let the reader do with that information what they will. Like I'm interested in your, you know, with your experience of reading the book, how you feel about my parents and and Tracy in particular. How that's what do you think of their choice? What do you think of them? That's
0: um, <clears throat> I'd possibly see it quite black and white. I sure. do I do understand that idea of like oh, trauma. And, mm. Sure,
1: and can I just just say I'm yes. sorry to interrupt. Um, I certainly I think that what they did was evil. Yes, many of these things. I th- the act itself.
0: I think the act. I I think as a parent once. If, if you don't have those um, past traumas, or mm. even if you do, and if, and I haven't had the problem of a, an addiction or anything mm-hmm. like that, um, but when you have your own child yeah. and you look at their face and you understand, I mean, the thing that struck me most about this book is just how innocent children are. Yes. Even if you parroted your dad, even if, you know, you took on the guilt of... Um, bullying your sisters yeah. and chasing them around with a knife and you felt guilty about that mm-hmm. later um, or even ashamed but children are so innocent we, they are. we are here to protect them and I suppose um, the responsibility of being mm-hmm. a parent is yeah. to step up to that definitely and you see so many parents go through awful awful things you think about refugees and parents and what they what some parents sacrifice to protect their children yes. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. No. <laughs> even though we love our kids.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it
0: is, we have chosen to have our child. Sure. So it's ultimately our responsibility. And I
1: completely, um, yeah, I completely agree with that. And my, I, I would, you know, um, should I become a parent? I, I would think very much the same, but... um I'm just interested in. I guess I've always been interested in the way these problems keep recurring. There is, you know, every, with every generation of children, there are parents who will fail them, and what can we do to to prevent that from happening? I'm interested in prophylactic sort of insight into these things, and we should I think support
0: that, parents is what.
1: We're yeah, to I mean, do. there are a whole host of other things which maybe we get to in later in the interview, but um,
0: well, it's you know. interesting that you. I've always, to- I guess I've
1: always sought to understand, mm. and uh, of course. There's that that has that instinct to absolutely condemn and say that's disgusting and to air your repugnance which i do I, I know I, I certainly feel that very strongly but i know that there's no kind of that there's no catharsis in that that so you, you try to dig deeper to understand like why why
0: and I, I think in some ways that does come down to our idea of community and mm. our support of community mm-hmm. regardless mm-hmm. of where and how you're born and what resources you have, mm-hmm. um, which brings me to the foster care system in particular. Sure. So we can look at human beings and we know humans, um, uh, we fail and we make mistakes.
1: <laughs> Newsflash, spoiler <Yeah>. alert.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I would like to think that when you have so many humans working in one, on one thing, such as a foster care system yeah. or... Um, other support networks mm-hmm. for families that are doing it tough, that we do a better job than what yes. you experience in foster care. Are you able to look at the system itself and and point out where they could do better?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm very much involved in, I guess, um, ad- advocacy around this issue. Um, well, there are a number of things. Um, <laughs> I don't expect you to solve it begin? all today. Oh no, really? Oh, phew. <laughs> I guess uh, there are a couple of there are a couple of things. Um, there are not enough resources for uh, this, the various state departments of child safety. So. In terms of, you know, suppose you have families that are struggling, you know, um, parents are um, uh, struggling with a drug addiction or mental illness, they're abusive or neglectful, you know, you're going to have uh, caseworkers investigate the home. They are not resourced properly. Rates of attrition, burnout among um, social workers are very, very high because there's, you know, not enough resources. There's too few of them for the caseload, so they burn out. And so that's one leg of the system that's kind of broken. There's also not enough um, out-of-home carers, um, so... Uh, you know, sometimes you have situations where, you know, up to six, seven children are placed in one home because the alternative is putting them in a hotel room, which, you know, you can't really do. Um, And so obviously those foster parents with seven children are not going to be able to look after them in the way that a child should. Um, So that's another leg of the system. Um, And I think also, and this is somewhat controversial, I think that we need to look at preventing um, where we can children who are likely to go into the care system from perhaps coming into existence. So I think that, you know, um, it's very common for people who have drug addiction problems to have children who make contact with the out-of-home care system. I, um, in the television show that I made for the ABC called Roadmap to Paradise, I advocated that we um, pay uh, drug addicts um, to be given long-term contraception um, to prevent them from having children, and then um, when they have um, sobered up, when they've quit their addiction, they can, you know, stop taking the contraception and have those children. And I think we would enter, uh, we would prevent so many children from entering the system in the first place.
0: I, uh, I suspect that was met with some well, pushback, <laughs> uh, a little bit
1: of pushback, but actually, surprisingly, a lot of um, uh, understanding. Um, I think that. People understand that I'm not coming from a place of malice. Or well, you're not
0: a, saying to sterilise. Yeah,
1: I yeah, I'm certainly not saying that. But I think long-term contraception is something that's voluntary, it's consensual, and it's reversible. So that's another leg of the system. And I guess also, um, you know, some parents whose kids are taken from them, um, you know, uh, they can they can bounce back um, with proper resourcing. You know, we've had successive governments, um, you know, at federally and state levels, you know gut funding from, you know, really important social services around mental health and women's shelters and all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, there are ways to support families who are struggling. Um, Do you think
0: if your parents had been given the right support, it might have ended up differently for your family?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, we were consistently returned to my mother and she was, you know, her heroin addictions only worsened. Um, So she clearly wasn't given tools to um, become a better mother and um, to to look after us. Um, And of course, there's this interplay between seeing how bad she is as a mother and guilt and going to the drugs. It's a vicious cycle. Um, But yes, I think that it could have been reversed. I believe very much that structural resources can alter human behaviour. Things could have been better. Mm. Certainly. So that's probably the last thing um, that I think could improve things. You know, give struggling families who have made contact with the Department of Child Safety um, a chance. Give them resources. Um, give them mental health um, plans. You know, help them because they still love their kids. They still love their kids because it's the, it's an eternal, beautiful part of human beings that parents do love their children. I mean, it's evolution or it's God. You know, whatever your philosophy may be. You know, it's pretty deep in there and, uh, you know, I think that it's people's love for their children is occluded or blocked by their own personal problems and we can undo those problems with love, tenderness, resources, you know, mental health care.
0: We'll be right back with Corey after this. Your story is one of quite um, interesting extremes.
1: Yes, yes, (laughs) a lot of extremes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You ended up um, getting a kind of like a scholarship, right? Yeah, yeah. To a, a private school. Yes. Um, I can't imagine a more different world going from oh, the foster care system. Oh, quite different. Quite different. <laughs> what was that like as a oh, teenager? Oh, it was amazing.
1: It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I, I was so happy. Uh, you know, I was just blown away by how wealthy uh, the school was. It was a Nudgee College, a boarding, an all boys Catholic boarding school um, in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, and it was just, it was just the best thing that ever happened to me. I studied really, really hard. Um, I was a big nerd. Um, I didn't make many friends. But I left high school, um, you know, having read several hundred books and, you know, having discovered philosophy and literature and uh, with very good marks. Um, the third highest score, you you know, people can achieve in, in Queensland. Um, and it it, it revolutionised my life. It, it turned my life around. And it's something that I um, consider a massive part of, um, you know, whatever success I have had today professionally and, and personally and, and my happiness. Um,
0: and is that about... Education, opportunity, support. I think all it's those all those things. things.
1: Yeah, it's a, a delicious bagel-y mixture of <laughs> of all that stuff. It was. Um, I guess it was. Um, it was you know a good education. Um, prior to that, I was in pretty rough state schools, and you know a lot of kids um, were often trauma-informed and um, you know uh, defiant, there was violence and stuff like that. So that's a hard learning environment. But although I, I did get very good marks in that environment. Um, it didn't really encourage academic life. Um so there was certainly just the edge the quality of the education. But also the sense that I was in, I was kind of important, that I I mattered. You know, when you're strutting around like a you know Italian Renaissance style buildings <laughs> yes. you know, and they're looking out on like incredibly verdant rugby ovals, you're like, you know what, maybe maybe the future is okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, now you after you left high school you went to university mm-hmm. And at some point, you became an ice addict. Mm -hmm. And.
1: The drug, not the. not the form of water. N- not
0: the form of water. Just you weren't just chummy. Chom-
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> on ice cubes. I, was, I took a kids.
1: sip of coffee right as you said that, <laughs> just in case anyone thought I was like secretly eating an ice cube. Like, oh no, he's still doing it. Oh, goodness. No, it was stop methamphetamine. Him. And it was, um, yeah, it was, um, it was not good.
0: And how did that happen after, you know, you, mm. you kind of, that description of going to private school was mm. almost like a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory story. Yeah, like, you yeah. got the golden ticket, life sure. was going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, there's fantasy and then there's real life. Yes. What happens in real life, real life after you get the golden ticket and yeah. then life moves on?
1: Mm. Well, for me, I uh, can't speak for everyone's experience, but uh, things began. They didn't catch up with me, but they began to catch up with me. Um, the the denial of, of what had happened to me, the trauma. Um, I mean, intellectually, I could acknowledge some of it. Um, but I would always tell myself, well, you know, I've overcome that now, look at me, look at me, go. Uh, but the emotional consequences of that began to play out. Um, you know, I was isolated, I couldn't regulate my emotions properly. Um, and I fell into a massive depression. Um, and uh, you know, in that sort of context, the massive release of you know neurochemicals and dopamine and serotonin, You know, I was like a I was like a moth to the flame, Um, and I I threw myself at drugs uh, very very uh, very very strongly. Let's say I was very passionate about drugs.
0: And what got you out of it? Because you say it was for about a year.
1: Yeah, it was. Well, it was it was a little over a year with yeah other things. But um, it was about a year of of intense ice use. Um, The thing that got me out of it is um, I might I might save that for readers. Uh, Okay, it's a very funny story. All right. Um essentially the first instance of tremendous luck in my life i think and and the way and just bizarre contingency um but aside from that there was uh it's there's something very interesting about those harder drugs in that you can see the devastation they're wreaking on you you know quite quickly and i think that can catalyze uh an awareness that you need to stop them mm. they everything happens more quickly on harder drugs you know compared to like cigarettes where people can smoke for 50 years and you don't you it's it's, it's like a frog in boiling water you know it's just slowly you get cigarette and sicker and sicker ice and other horrible drugs you know it happens pretty quickly and you know you're faced with a a, a, a fork in the road pr- pretty early on
0: mm. and one of your, what I found to be one of the funniest lines in I can't remember which comedy um skip that you were doing yep. <clears> was um you were, you said something about um you came out to your friends mm-hmm. and then a year later yeah you had to tell them you weren't gay and <laughs> yeah you thought getting you I thought it was him.
1: yeah oh, well, I you know um yeah gay people talk about how hard it is coming out of the closet it's also pretty hard going back in um. You know, not a lot of support for my uh, my people, <laughs> the whoopsies, homosexuals. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, and so uh, simultaneous with the drug use, there was an experimental phase with my sexuality and things like that. And um,
0: so, how did yeah. people respond? when We went, "Hey, by the way."
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I didn't even get. I, I didn't really have a family to be disowned by. So, in some <laughs> sense, I was kind of very privileged.
0: What about it's, your it's friends in the gay privilege.
1: community? How did they um, respond? Oh, you know, we were all, look, we were all young and we were all having um, too much fun. Uh, we thought we were bulletproof. <laughs> and we were very Sounds hedonistic. like everyone at, yeah, at yeah, that Yeah, I think I pushed it to an extent that most don't. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there was something, um, there was something fun uh, and slightly scandalous about the whole thing to me. I think I romanticised the idea of my own destruction, which I talk about in the book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, speaking of comedy, mm-hmm. um, I know that you you were talking about these kinds of things before um, we had um, Hannah Gadsby and her comedy skit, yep. but the two styles of comedy mm-hmm. seem quite um, similar to me in mm-hmm. the in a sense that you're making people laugh. Mm-hmm about things that are both deeply uncomfortable, mm-hmm. traumatic and painful yeah. for you, as they were for her, mm-hmm. um, why do you think people laugh? I laugh at both your yeah, comedy yeah. skits and at um, Hannah yeah. Gadsby's, but do we laugh because it's genuinely funny, even though it comes from such pain, or is it a way of dealing with that pain?
1: Well, I think everyone's got their pet theory. My personal opinion um, is that I think that they are, and this is sort of informed infer- by s- Some books I've read. I think that there are three reasons people laugh. There's surprise, like a logical puzzle. So, so for example, Mitch Hedberg uh, has a great joke where he says, "Um, "Rice is great. Rice is hungry. If you're uh, rice is great if you're hungry and you want to eat two thousand of something. So it's sort of like a surprising way of looking at reality. Um, Another one of his jokes is, "A dog is forever in the push-up position." (laughs) <laughs> right? So it's just a surprising sort of re-jigging of how we look at the world. Um, superiority. So, you know, the classic, your mum is so fat, or someone falling on their face, or stepping in dog poo, right? So that's another reason. So surprise, superiority. And then I think the third reason people laugh, and I think it, they laugh hardest, is uh, release of tension. You know, so when you, um, you know, like when if you see someone fall over that you care about, there is that moment of... Oh, Do they, you know, have they hit their head? Are they going to die? And then you realize they're okay. And suddenly you laugh. Suddenly it's funny because you had so much tension. Um, So I think uh, they're the three reasons we laugh. Surprise, superiority, and uh, tension release. Um, And I think that... um, all of us have tension um, and we especially have tension about the deepest darkest topics in life mortality um, you know uh, concern about our mental health um, uh, fear of aging, fear of sickness all of these things lie at the heart of, of what it means to be human um, and and therein lies so much potential for comedy because you can pop that tension in interesting surprising ways and people want to laugh about death people want to laugh about their dad you know being a horrible person Um, there's a sort of communal aspect that comedy can provide where you you do acknowledge and then bust through that tension how
0: does how does laughter make you feel
1: laughter i mean laughter makes me feel good um, i think i'm quite typical of our species um I'm not an alien i swear um, yeah dopamine neurochemicals all the all the great stuff um, it makes it's harder when you do comedy because you kind of become a little dead inside you sort of anytime anyone's being funny in a, certainly in a professional context you like your mind's always analyzing um and yeah, the things that make you laugh tend to be darker. And, but what and,
0: about when people laugh at you? Uh, at oh, jokes? how does that...
1: Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. Um, I've completely misinterpreted <laughs> that. Um, it makes me feel great. It makes me feel connected. It makes me feel understood. It makes me feel happy that I've um, given happiness to other people. Um, all of the, you know, kind of cheesy reasons that any comedian says they like making people laugh. Also, often there's money on the table. So it's nice to be like, oh, I've made a couple of hundred dollars there. They that the booker will give me that money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're engaged to be Uh, married. I am, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, Do you ever think about having your own children?
1: I do, yeah. My fiance Sophie, and I have talked about it. Um, I I still want to do a a little more therapy and I I want to be in a really great financial position. But I would love... I think that I would... uh, I'm not a man given to arrogance, but I think I would make a very good father... I think that I've got a, love, a lot of love and I know a lot about what not to do. And um, I'd love to have a child and I, I think I'd also like to adopt um, a kid uh, in the care system. Yeah.
0: I think you'd make a fantastic father, Corey. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and talking thank to you us. Thank you for having me. That's Corey White. The Prettiest Horse in the Glue Factory is out now. To get your mitts on the book, head to the notes in this episode.